So we're finishing up this series, Ezra and Nehemiah. We've been in this thing since like the beginning of January. So it's been almost five months, I think, in this, if my math is right. And, um, you know, it, this is just an interesting thing because this this book ends in a way that doesn't, you don't really expect it to end. You you expect this book, like most books, you expect to to have it end in a positive way, right? A way that's like, hey, everybody lived happily ever after or everything's going great, and uh, it doesn't end that way here. It actually ends not with a bang, but with a whimper. It's, um, it's, kind, of, it's kind of sad, actually, in some ways. But I, th- I wanna just address this as we get into this, and we're gonna look at um, how this book concludes in, in sort of a, a depressing way, in some sense, um, at least from our, our vantage point. But I think there's a couple things to, to note in this as, before we even look at the text. Um, one is I think that this uh, reality that it doesn't end on this high note of everything's going amazing actually does lean to um, the reality that the Bible can be trusted as a historical document at, at the very least. If this was a fairy tale or a fable or something that wasn't rooted in history as many people claim, um, we wouldn't expect it to end this way. Uh, we would expect it to end on chapter 12, where at the end of chapter 12, the people of Israel are just, they're killing it. They're doing amazing. They're, uh, everything's going really well. But chapter 13 rolls in and that's not what happens. So I, I think that that's one thing we can see in this is that this is telling us a true story. If it wasn't a true story, if it was revisionist history, or if it was a fable of some sort, it, it would have ended with, all right, this is awesome. They all did amazing. There's no problems, but it doesn't. But secondly, I think that this actually shows us a more crucial point as we look at the broader picture of the Bible, the storyline of the Bible. Uh, and, and this, I think, is where we're going to go, is, is that this final chapter of Nehemiah really shows us our need for a true and better savior because otherwise we're sunk. That's really what we're seeing in Nehemiah is that the people of Israel, despite their best efforts, can't do it. They can't pull it off. They can't save themselves. They can't even follow their own commitments. And if we're honest with ourselves, we know that's true of us too. That despite our best efforts, despite our best intentions, despite what we may try to accomplish in our own sheer willpower, we can't get there on our own. We can't save ourselves. We can't even improve ourselves without the help of Christ in any way that's meaningfully, eternally important. Of course, we can improve ourselves on temporal things, right? The the things that happen here on earth, sure. We can eat better, we can exercise, we can do certain things to improve our lives, but on spiritually significant, eternally weighty matters, we can't even do that for ourselves. And that's what Ezra and Nehemiah help us to see, I think, in the broader understanding of the scriptures. Um, they, they, even though Ezra and Nehemiah, these characters that we've read about, these, these men who came to Israel to help them, they did a good job. Uh, they actually, in some ways, did a great job, but they weren't good enough. 
uh, Nehemiah um, and Ezra, their names, Ezra means help is here. And Nehemiah means God wipes away our tears. That's what their names mean. And, and while they, they, they demonstrated that, they, they showed that reality in some way, they didn't get all the way, right? Because they're not the savior that Christ sent into the world. We need a real and true savior, one from heaven, God himself, to be for us what we could never be and do for us what we could never do. And I think that that's really what we're gonna see the need of in this passage. So if you want to look at chapter 13 with me, um, for some context here, uh, so we're, we're gonna see a little bit of this in the text, but basically what's happening is that between chapters 12 and 13, Nehemiah returns to Babylon because he was summoned back by the king. And uh, he, we know from the beginning of this book that he was the, the cupbearer to the king. He was in a position of, uh, if not authority, he was certainly a, a trusted official in the Babylonian kingdom. He's been now given leave to go to uh, Israel for a, for a long time to rebuild the walls. Well, now he's been called back. And he goes back to Babylon for about 12 years and then comes back to Israel after 12 years of being away. And uh, so, so he was summoned by the king. He didn't have the luxury of saying no to that, even though he probably wanted to. But when he comes back to Israel after 12 years being absent, he finds everything has gone wrong. Everything. The people made a covenant with God back in chapter 10 and they actually almost systematically break that commitment line by line. And so he comes back and he, he has to deal with, with what's happening in Israel in his absence. So let's look at this. We're going to look at this in basically three sections. Uh, 1 through 14 will be the first section. 15 to 22 will be the second. And then 23 to 31 will be our third. So let's look at the first 14 verses. It says, On that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those who were of foreign descent. Um, That's basically giving us some context for what happens after Nehemiah comes back. Because verse 4 says, Now before this, so before all that happened, Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, and who was related to Tobiah, Important to note, Tobiah was an Ammonite. Okay, that's why this is, this is being talked about. This, uh, this priest Eliashib was related to Tobiah and he was preparing for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem. 
And then I discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry and threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders and they cleansed the chambers and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. I also found out that the portions of the Le- that the Levites uh, of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, "Why is the house of God forsaken?" And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses, Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Padiah of the Levites, and as their assistant, Hanan the son of Zechur, son of Mataniah, for they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service." So, of course, these are Nehemiah's words. He's speaking in the first person. And he's describing what happens or what happened while he was gone in Babylon and and what he discovered when he came back. And what we see here is a failure on the people of Israel to uphold their covenant with God because they promised in chapter 10, verse 39 particularly, that they would not neglect the house of God, the temple. If, if we just read that last verse of chapter 10, it says this, for the people of Israel and the sons of Levite shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers. And then here's the commitment. We will not neglect the house of our God. And Nehemiah comes back and lo and behold, exactly what they did. They neglected the house of God. Now they did it in a very weird way, honestly. This is strange. Um, They let this guy Tobiah move into the temple and make it his personal apartment. Like, I don't even understand why they agreed to do this. This is so crazy. But they, they, this guy Eliashib, who was a priest, he was, he was in charge of the chambers of the temple and he's got this random relation, this guy named Tobiah, who's an Ammonite. He's, not a, he's a Gentile. He's not a member of the Jewish people. And he's like, sure, you can, we'll just clear all this stuff out that's meant for the Levites because this is the room that they were storing the food for the Levites, which is how they got paid to do the, the, their job, right? They were paid in, in the form of food primarily. And as they conducted their service, that this is what the people of Israel contributed to allow the Levites and the singers and the gatekeepers to have the time to do the ministry. They were doing the ministry and they were being compensated for it in, in the form of food so that they didn't have to go work the fields and, and grow their own food. And it gave them the time to serve the people and the Lord. But they just clear that whole chamber out and Tobiah is given a personal apartment in this room. So Nehemiah shows up after 12 years of being away and he comes to find out that this is happening. And in verse seven, it says he came to Jerusalem and I then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah. And then it says, I was very angry 
and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. So he just gets in there and he's like, okay, tossing this couch out onto the street, tossing this out. And he just clears the whole place out, cleanses it, and he, and he just deals with the problem, right? He deals with the issue. And then because this guy, Tobiah, had been living in this room, he re- this, this had some ripple effects to now that the Levites and the singers, in verse 10, he talks about this, they, they weren't able to do the work of the temple because they had no way to eat. So then they had to go back to their fields and work in that, in that way, therefore neglecting the responsibilities that they had for the people of, of Israel. And so all of this had ripple effects and Nehemiah deals with it. And he says, all right, we're cleaning this out. And he's really angry about it. Um, but uh, honestly, this is just like, it's just a weird thing that happens. I don't fully understand why they let Tobiah live there, but they did. And so here he has to basically get them back on track and he's calling them out and saying, you promised, you covenanted to keep the house of God maintained. And this is what you do. So they failed in that regard. Second way they failed, look at verse 15 to 22. It says, in those days, I saw Judah, I saw, excuse me, in Judah, people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food, um, Tyrrhenians also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath day to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. When I confronted the, the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this evil thing that you are doing profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our, our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of the servants at, of my servants at the gates that no load may be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. But then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. So again, Nehemiah is going through line by line how the people of Israel have failed to keep their end of the covenant. And in this case, they failed once again to keep the Sabbath holy once again. And this, is, this seems to be the theme for Israel. They, this ongoing rodeo of not remembering to obey the, co- the co- commandments of God to obey the Sabbath. And so they don't. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, and so 
here we are. We're, we're, all, we're back to the same old thing. And Nehemiah specifically points out, he's, he's asking the nobles, the leaders of Judah, and he says to them, what is this evil that you're doing profaning the Sabbath day? He says, did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and this city? He's talking about the reason that the people of Israel were sent into Babylonian captivity to begin with. And it was because they didn't obey the Sabbath. as one, Well, one of many reasons, but that was one of the main things. That they weren't... Now, what is the big deal about the Sabbath? What is, first of all, what is the Sabbath? Okay, the Sabbath is the day of rest. It's the day that God said, six days you work, the seventh day you rest. Now, the theology behind the Sabbath day is uh, that we rest from our labor because we trust the Lord to rule the universe. We don't have to run everything. We don't have to be in control of everything. And Israel was given this, this calling as a people to remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy because it demonstrated to the world around them that looked on, on them and said, we trust God. We trust God to provide for our needs. We trust God to give us what we need. We don't have to work seven days a week because God is good to us and he will provide for us. Now in New Testament theology, uh, the Sabbath command, it's a debatable thing between Christians whether the Sabbath is to be uh, observed in the same way or a very similar way. Um, The Puritans, for their part, really did believe that. Um, and you can't be right about everything, I think. So that's, that's where I'm at. I'm not a Sabbatarian in the same sense that they were, but I do think there's a principle here uh, that is good and healthy and right for us. Uh, and that is that we find our rest in Jesus eternally. And that by taking time off from our work and our labor, uh, we, we demonstrate that before the Lord and before our, even to preach the gospel to our own hearts. I think there's good in that. Um, and, and Christians of goodwill can have differences of opinion on how seriously we take the Sabbath. But, but I think that it's, it's a good thing to do. It's a good rhythm and it's intended to give us uh, that, that forward mind to eternity, which is great. That being said, in the Old Testament covenant, uh, there were deep and dire consequences for the people of Israel not obeying the Sabbath. It led them into Babylonian captivity. And now these people are returned from Babylon to rebuild their society and to rebuild their faith and and to have a community of believers. And Nehemiah finds them, after being gone from them for 12 years, that they're right back at the same old thing of doing work on the Sabbath. In this case, he's seeing people tread wine uh, or treading the wine presses to make wine on the Sabbath, loading up uh, heaps of grain and bringing that that, uh, merchandise into the city, uh, purchasing food from Gentile merchants as well. Like he's just kind of going through the list of things and he says, this is ridiculous the reason we went into exile to begin with is because we were doing this. Why are we doing it again? And then Nehemiah takes matters into his own hands as he did with Tobiah's apartment, throwing all of his furniture out on the street. Here he takes matters into his hands and he shuts the gates at, at sun, uh, sunset uh, on the day before the Sabbath. 
and basically just had the Levites guard the gate so that no one can get in and out of the city with their merchandise. And then the Gentiles who are hanging out by the city waiting for the gates to open, he goes out and he confronts and he says to them, uh, why are you sitting out here? Basically, if you keep doing this, I'm going to lay hands on you. And that's a nice way of saying I'm going to hurt you. Um, So Nehemiah kind of goes tough guy here on them and then uh, they disappear. And so he, he does all of this to, to preserve the people of Israel in keeping their end of the covenant. Okay, so that's the second way they failed. They failed to keep the Sabbath day. Um, the third way is verse 22 to 31. Let's look at this. It says, In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them, and beat some of them, and pulled out their hair. This guy's escalating his anger here. He probably needed some some uh, encouragement and a hug, but okay. Um, And I made them take an oath in the name of God saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among many nations, there was no king like him and he was beloved by his God and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made him him even to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women. Um, let me just address this quick and then we'll read the last few verses. Um, we, we dealt with this issue of the marriage thing back in Ezra too. So this isn't the first time this has come up. And what I said back then, uh, and, I'll, and I'll say it again because it's, it's true, the issue here is not with the nationality of the women that were being married. It, it wasn't an, a race issue at all. This is not saying that intermarriage in the sense of racial uh, intermarriage is, is wrong. Uh, what it's dealing with is the faith of these, these people. We know that intermarriage uh, is not wrong inherently because Moses was married to a Cushite woman. And we know that Boaz, an Israelite, married a woman named Ruth who was from Moab. And we know that Ruth ultimately became the great, grandmother of King David. The the, the problem is not where these women were from. The problem was what these women believed and what they they valued and their their faith in false gods. That's the problem. It It is a warning against marrying someone who doesn't share your faith. And I think that's a consistent teaching through the whole Bible. Um, but in this historical context of Nehemiah, it, it, was, it was dealt with in a, in a sense of not marrying these women from Ashdod and Moab and Ammon. So Ammonites and Moabites, they weren't to marry these women, not, not because they were from those places, but because they didn't believe in the God that they worshipped. And we know that that's the problem because he brings up Solomon And Solomon, of course, we know that his spiritual downfall happened as he started to marry women who didn't share his faith. And they encouraged him to worship other gods. 
and to import their religions into his. And that was the problem. And then Nehemiah brings that up. He says, remember Solomon? You guys are doing the same thing that he did. And it didn't go well for Solomon because Solomon dies and then immediately the kingdom of Israel after he dies is just torn to pieces. God allowed Solomon to live out his days without the the tearing apart of his nation because God was remembering David, Solomon's father. But after Solomon's death, all, all of it just broke loose and the whole kingdom was destroyed and split. It didn't end well. So that's the problem that's happening here. And let's continue to read from verse 28 to the end. It says, one of the sons of Jehoiada, son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite. Therefore I chased him from me. Remember me, remember them, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I cleansed from them everything foreign and established the duties of the priests and the Levites in each in his work. And I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and the first fruits. Remember me, O my God, for good. So, so here's, here's the problem. Um, we've seen just Nehemiah recounting three ways, and there maybe were more ways even, but in this book, we've got three clear examples of Israel's failure to follow the Lord, obey the covenants, do what they were called to do. This all happened in the span of 12 years. Not a very long time in the grand scheme of things. Nehemiah comes back, and and these things started much sooner than 12 years, right? Because he comes back after 12 years, and these practices of marrying women that didn't share their faith, of of, uh, letting this Tobiah guy live in the temple, of not following the Sabbath, all of these things were well involved. They weren't like just starting. They had been going on. So it's, it's conceivable that he was only gone for a year or two, and all of this started to collapse, it, but this, this passage is really a reminder for us of something that's uncomfortable to, to think about, but it's important that we do, that sinful hearts, which we all possess, are always going to be prone to wander from the Lord. We are always going to find ourselves drifting away if left to ourselves. That's the point. This passage, this book, this whole story doesn't end on some great spiritual high note that everybody's doing awesome. No, it's, it's ending in a pretty depressing way. These, and yes, Nehemiah comes back, and yes, he starts trying to right the ship again, but the problem, the underlying issue here is still there. And, and so what's the overall point that this, this book and Ezra and Nehemiah together tell us? We need a savior. We need someone who can come and rescue us. We need Jesus who came into the world as God, from God, becoming man to be the true Israelite, the true savior, the one who would actually obey the father in heaven with perfection and that he did that for us. That's the gospel. 
that the gospel, the good news of Jesus is not that we do all the right things all the time. It's that we can't do all the right things, but we have a savior who helps us by being for us what we could never be, dying in our place and rising again from the dead. God sent the solution to our problem in Jesus Christ. And and Jesus is, we can think of it this way, he is the older brother sent from the father to rescue the younger and more foolish children. Jesus gets to this point in a story he tells in the, in the gospel of Luke chapter 15. We're not going to look at all of this in depth. I'll just summarize it. But he, he tells a story. We know the story as the prodigal son. It's a bad, it's a bad title for the story because it's not really the point of the story. Um, that's not, you know, calling it the prodigal son is, is uh, our, you know, in hindsight way of summarizing the message. The story should be called the tale of two sons because that's how Jesus starts the story in Luke 15. He says, and there was a man who had two sons. And we always forget about the other son because we're so focused on what we would call the prodigal son. But they were both prodigal sons, actually. So of course we know the story. You're probably familiar with it. The younger son takes his inheritance from his father early and he runs, home, runs away from home and squanders it, lives a reckless life does all kinds of things that, that we would all kind of line up and go, yeah, that's, that's not good behavior. And he's the kind of sinner that really just wears his sin on his sleeve, right? He wears it almost like a badge of honor that he's a sinner at the beginning. But then he comes to his senses as he hits rock bottom. And then he turns back to his father and goes home. And there's a celebration and there's a party and the father welcomes his prodigal home. We love that and we should. That tells us the story of one kind of sinner that exists in the world, but there's actually two kinds of sinners. The other kind of sinner that exists in the world is represented by the older brother. The brother who stays home and does his job man's the farm, doesn't seem to do anything outwardly that's all that bad, but all the while is inwardly self-righteous, inwardly resentful, inwardly bitter that the father would love this younger prodigal son. These are the two kinds of sinners, two kind of types of sinners that exist those who gladly wear their sin on their sleeve and those who say, I'm not really a sinner, they're sinners. And I don't know where on that spectrum you fall. I know where I fall. I don't know where you fall. But, but all of us are on that spectrum somewhere. And the good news of the story of the prodigal son, as we call it, or the parable of the two sons, is that the father wants and welcomes both kinds of sinners to himself. There is grace for all who receive it. We see this in the story that the younger son comes to his senses and he returns home expecting to be made a slave. Instead, the father throws him a party in celebration. The older son in the field comes in 
and sees the party and going on and he asks what's happening and the servants explain what's happening and then the father comes out to him and says, come on in. You're welcome here too. That son though doesn't respond to the father's invitation. There are two kinds of sinners, right? Those who believe and know that they're, they're truly sinners and those who don't believe that they're truly sinners. But Jesus comes for all of us in that. We, we know that there was a, an example of a real living human being who was the embodiment of the older brother who met Jesus and was changed by him. In fact, there's been since him probably millions, possibly billions of such people. But one biblical example is the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul had absolutely no problem admitting that he was a self-righteous jerk and that he needed the grace of God as much as the people who lived their sin on their sleeves. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul talks about this, starting in verse 4. He says, I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, that is, in his own efforts and works. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So that's, that's his resume, right? He's from the tribe of Benjamin. He is the best Hebrew that there, are, that there is. He was a Pharisee. He was a part of the, the, tri, uh, the, the, the party of the Pharisees, which we know are the ones that are the most confronting of Jesus. He was zealous so much so that he killed and persecuted Christians in the early days before his conversion. He believed his righteousness under the law was blameless, that he had no flaws under the law. That was his viewpoint of himself. But look at what he says in verse 7. Whatever gain I had from all of that stuff, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, Jesus' sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but a righteousness which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. You hear what Paul says? Paul says, I was the guy who thought he had everything figured out and had it all worked out just fine until I met Jesus and realized all of that is garbage because the only thing that matters is that the righteousness of Christ is mine through faith. 
It's not my righteousness. It's not my efforts. It's Christ's righteousness and his efforts applied to me by belief, by trust, that then puts me in a right relationship with God. That is true of the sinner who is outwardly sinful and the sinner who is inwardly sinful. And both categories of people need Jesus to save them from their sins. The point of this is that we are not perfect people, not a single one of us. And we are going to wander from Jesus if we don't keep tethered to him. And our call, as Paul points out here, is to put all the past junk in our lives behind us and move forward to Jesus in the present and future. How do we do that? We do it the way Paul calls us to do it, by knowing the perfect righteousness of Jesus is ours by trusting in him. And if we know we are perfectly righteous by the merits of Christ, we have a whole new world in front of us and we can actually live the kind of life he calls us to live by grace, by his strength, by his spirit living within us. And that is where all of this changes. It turns from me white-knuckling my way into righteousness to open-handedly receiving righteousness. And that is a freeing thing that actually works in making us more like Jesus in the end. As long as we try to hold on to our own ability, we'll always fail and we'll always be discouraged. But when we let go of our ability and trust in the ability of Christ to work through us, everything changes. And I hope you'll see that in your life and that we will walk together in this. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your love and grace that's for us through the merits of your son. We pray that we would, we would rest in his righteousness, that we would trust in your grace, that we would live in your, in your spirit's leading and that you would give us all that we need today for life and godliness. Father, help us to turn away from our, our sin and help us to turn away from our self-righteousness and to know that we can do nothing in our own apart from you to be right with you, but we can come to you and believe in you and have a relationship with you that puts us in that relationship correctly. Pray for your help in these things that you would seal it in us by your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.